0: Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series into Jonah. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. I want to give you a book reference as we continue our sermon series through Jonah uh, talking about evangelism. This one's called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. It's by Leslie Newbegin. Uh, Leslie Newbegin is a, a missionary who came back off the mission field after several, several years serving uh, back to England and realized that the country that he came back to was drastically different than the country he left when he went on the mission field. It was more godless, it was more separated from a, a Christian understanding. And so what he did was he, he looked at his culture and his context, and he began to bring the same things to that area of ministry in, in England that he had brought to the foreign mission field. He realized that there was just such a need to do missions and evangelism in a different way. And so uh, the Gospel in a Plural Society is very much a classic. It's been out for several years now. I really encourage you to read it. It talks a lot about contextualization, uh, just knowing the culture, how they think, uh, how they act, what their predispositions are, their assumptions on truth, on, on religion in general, and how to address that. It's, uh, it's really good. You can take a look at my copy afterwards if you want to, and I'll continue to make some, some other books available to you as well. So we found Jonah chapter 3. Let me pray for us as we jump in here. Father in heaven, thank you so much for um, just the opportunity we have now to look into your word. As we continue to study and, and work through the book of Jonah, uh, we pray. And uh, thankfully, I've, I've heard from several people this week who are praying for individuals, sending me names, just background stories of people that are in their life that they are hoping will trust you. And uh, i join with them in their prayerful efforts that the gospel would reach their hearts and transform their lives for eternity. Lord, I pray that we would all strategically, intentionally take some time and and just think about the the family members, the friends that we have in our life who desperately need the gospel. Uh, Help us to pray even now uh, as often as possible for their hearts to be just torn and broken and softened to the things of God that they might trust you. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do what only He can do through the teaching and the reading of your word this morning and ask all these things through your Son Jesus. Amen. Amen. Marsha, you guys, did you survive? Retreat went well. Ladies back from the retreat, raise your hand. You guys went on the retreat. You guys are all back. All right. So, ladies, if you missed out, New Life Ranch, hey, next time talk to Marsha. We'll throw some pictures up for you. I'm sure there'll be some reports and uh, some great things that happened, So welcome back. You guys get the gold star award coming to coming to church Sunday morning after a long retreat. That's awesome. So hope it went really good. Uh, I'll never forget the day that um, I first became a parent. And I don't know if you guys know about these things. If you haven't, if you're if you're married and you don't have kids yet, let's get on Genesis 1 and have some kids, all right? It's, it's time. The Lord's will, He's revealed it to me, it's time to have some babies around here. Um, but I'll never—I <laughs> hope somebody—you married, Bobby, was that you in the back? Sounds like it. Um, interesting thing happens as a parent. Do you guys—you know these little statistics and these benchmarks that they put out there for your kids? Like when your kid reaches four months old, they should be able to say these words, make these motions. When your kid reaches like, if they're not walking by a certain age, hey, there's something wrong. You've got to get going here, step it up and let's go. And and so as a first time parent, I was unaware that these benchmarks even existed. And And first of all, I just tell you, like, whatever benchmark it was, like, we were going to beat it in our family. Like, there's no questions asked. We're just going to annihilate all of them. In fact, I took it upon myself to teach Henry how to, like, crawl when he was still, like, six weeks old. I'm like, dude, just up on the knees, buddy. Come on. Let's go. Reach out one in front of the other. You can do this. And so, we're, we're like, doing this, and I'm like, man, we're crawling right. We're walking right. We're making words right. I'm pointing out animals, cow, moo, chicken, cluck. You got it. We're reaching all the benchmarks, and I'm like, golden star for dad here, right? And then I realized, I came to this sudden, drastic, life-altering realization. Parenting is a thousand times different with a kid when they're mobile than when they can just stay still. When kids start crawling and rolling around, finding stairways, different things to pull up on, it's a different ballgame. You guys, and so I finally, we reached this point and I'm just like, why am I teaching my kid to excel so much? Like go back to the time when you would just sit in your swing and I didn't have to worry about it. I could just leave you right there. It was great. All these things happen in life. And it's interesting, the the dynamics that we experience. As parents, we learn pretty quickly that the first steps, whatever they are, The first steps to crawling, the first steps to walking, the first steps to talking, the first steps are only the beginning. And there's a long road ahead after that. We're gonna look at the the book of Jonah, continue in the book of Jonah this morning and look at chapter three. And more than any other place in the book of Jonah, this chapter specifically talks about repentance. And so we're gonna see three things as we we look at this book, we're gonna see Repentance, number one, how it starts, number two, who needs it, and then number three, what is it? Repentance, how it starts, who needs it, and number three, what is it? And there's a great conundrum when it comes to repentance. I love what one writer says, and put it this way, the same badness which makes us need repentance also makes us unable to do it. This theologian says, only a bad person needs to repent, but only a good person can repent perfectly. The worse you are, the more you need it, and the less you can do it. C.S. Lewis has a, a really good definition of repentance. He says, repentance is a willing submission to humiliation and a kind of death. Martin Luther absolutely blew my mind in his first theses, and his 95 theses, that he nailed to the Wittenberg Chapel door. And he said this, he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What that means is, we will never get over our need for the gospel. We grow by the gospel, we come into this Christian life by the gospel. Everything will take us ultimately back to the gospel. And we will spend the rest of our lives as Christian, Christians in an ongoing process of repentance after repentance after repentance, death to self after death to self after death to self. Just like keep teaching my kids how to walk, the first act of repentance is only the beginning for the Christian. It's followed by several others after that. Let's look at the text here, in number one in your outline. Repentance, number one, how it starts. Look down at Jonah chapter 3, and I'm going to take a, a stab at verses 1 through 3 here. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days' journey in breadth." The first thing you notice in chapter 1 is that it starts out a lot like chapter 3, excuse me. It starts out a lot like chapter 1, Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2. I'll read those for you. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, same thing, for their evil has come up before me. But I want you to note this particular phrase in chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying this. Uh, The the word of the Lord came to Jonah again. This is not the first time you read that statement in the prophets. In fact, you'll see that verbatim in Jeremiah 1.13. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, Jeremiah speaks. Jeremiah 13 verse 3, the word of the Lord came to me a second time is how the text reads. Exact same as Jonah right here. And Haggai 2:20 says the word of the Lord came to a second time to Haggai, just a little bit different construction, but basically the same. In fact, four other times in the prophets, you're going to read that statement almost verbatim as we just did in Jonah chapter three. The syntax is very similar, but the situations are completely different. Jonah is unique. Every other time a prophet uses that phrase, it is used differently in the context. It is either an addendum, a clarification, or a reassurance of the words that the Lord originally gave to that prophet. Jonah is the only place where the prophet tries to run from God, ignore the command, disregard it, do his own thing, and then the Lord speaks to that same prophet a second time. And in order to understand how important this is, not only for the book of Jonah, but really for the Old Testament prophets, you have to understand the ministry of a prophet in the Bible. It's much different than the ministry of a pastor today. Much different. Um, We know from reading that there weren't just prophets in Israel. There were actually true prophets, and there were false prophets. And the reason and the way that you deciphered if a prophet was true or false is if his words actually came about and if they were really true. And if his words did not come about, if they were false words of a prophet, there was just uh, judgment and condemnation everywhere. I want you to look at this passage, First Kings uh, 13 is, is really—sometimes <laughs> Some, just go back this week and read First Kings 13. There's a sermon in here by itself. Read these verses, uh, 21 through 24. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord— and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you. This is God speaking to a prophet. You have come back, you have eaten bread, you drank water in the place in which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Because of this, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. His body was torn in the road, and the donkey stood beside it, and the lion also stood beside the body. Now, here's a prophet who speaks a false word, doesn't do what the Lord commanded him to do, saddles a donkey, goes out, a lion comes along, kills him instead of the donkey, and the donkey and the lion are just hanging out over the dead carcass of the prophet because he disobeyed the command of God. Old Testament prophet was a special calling. Remember, they were a mouthpiece for God. They often received visions, dreams, and direct revelation from God to speak his words to the people of Israel. And with that great role and authority became a great responsibility. Jonah Jonah is a prophet who wants justice, right? That's why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He wants to see the justice and the judgment of God. He's the prophet who wants justice for everybody except himself. In that case, he would really prefer mercy and grace. The passage continues in in verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And this is the response that we all thought we were going to read in chapter 1. God called him to arise and go. Jonah went, he rose, and, and he went. Maybe, maybe this time Jonah's going to obey. Maybe he finally came to an end of himself. No matter what it takes, no matter how hard it is, he's going to obey the voice of the Lord. No matter how much he doesn't want to do what the Lord has commanded him to do, he's going to do it, maybe. Maybe not, let's just keep reading. You're going to see some minor changes in the text from chapter 1 to chapter 3 in Jonah. And when you see that, stop and pay very detailed, close attention to those things. I want to point out just a few of them. Whereas chapter one says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying. Chapter three says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Your translation might say again. That's the first obvious difference in this text. So we're picking up this story after Jonah disobeyed, the word of the Lord came. It says almost the exact same thing. He's got another opportunity to obey, another opportunity to disobey. But here are some other more subtle differences between chapter one and three. Watch your prepositions. Chapter one says this, arise, go to the great city, and call out against it. Most of your English texts in chapter three will say the same thing. Arise, go to the great city, and call out against it. It's a really bad translation in Hebrew. It should read, call out to it. It's a completely different preposition in the Hebrew. In chapter one, verse two, the syntax indicates judgment and condemnation. To cry out against a city would indicate most of the time when you see the verb next to the preposition, judgment and condemnation for God. To call out to a city, most of the time indicates repentance. I'm going to deliver a message to you and I'm going to give you a chance to change your heart and change your mind. There's one more difference. Chapter 1, verse 2, at the end of it, it says, for their evil has come up before me. Do you see a motive? Do you see a reason for Jonah to go to Nineveh in chapter 3? It simply says at the end of verse 2, cry out, the message that I tell you The motive was erased. It's it's done away with from chapter one. It's completely different now in chapter three. Instead, we just have this straightforward message to reiterate a very important biblical principle for pastors, teachers, anybody who would ever open the scriptures at any given time in life and in ministry. And that's this. Those who speak the word of God do not have freedom or permission to craft their own message. Those who speak the word of God behind the word of God, do not have the freedom or the permission to craft their own message how they want to craft it. We speak the words of scripture and we teach the words of scripture and we stay in the words of scripture so we can be assured that the words that we speak are the words that God has already spoken. A lesson that Jonah was was learning, maybe even reluctantly. uh, Y'all, I'm kinda old school a little bit. Do you remember, any video gamers out there, you remember the the very first original Nintendo system that was out there? Some people still have them, big plastic cassettes. If they get hot, you kind of took them out, blow on them on the inside, put it back in, hit the power button. The, The thing I loved about the original Nintendo, game systems today, you've got like 60 buttons on one controller. The original Nintendo you had A, B, up, down, left, right, Start, reset. That was it. The thing I loved about it was, was these, just these two buttons. At any given time, when I was playing Rad Racer, Mario 3, The Legend of Zelda, if I died, if I lost my place on the board, I would just reach over and hit the reset button. I could start all over, right back from where I was at the beginning. It's almost as if God has given Jonah a huge reset button. You just lost your lives. You did terrible on that board, on that level. Just reach over and let's just just start this all over again. And I love how one commentator puts this. He says, the repetition of Jonah 1, 1 and 2 and 3, 1 and 2 gives the reader a sense of literary deja vu And it creates the impression of a new beginning for Jonah. He says the story starts over granting both Jonah and Nineveh a second chance. The reluctant prophet who didn't want to go to Nineveh to give them a second chance is himself experiencing a second chance from God. The question for us this morning is, is where does repentance start? Where does repentance start for Jonah. So, a verse in, in Romans, chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Repentance starts with the kindness, the goodness, and the grace, gracious patience of God that he lavishes on us in Jesus. God starts the process. He initiates the process. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no way that any of us would come to repentance. 2 Timothy 2 verse 25 says that God grants us the gift of repentance. Repentance is a gift. It is initiated by God. There is a human response element to it as well. How does it start? It starts with the kindness and the grace of God. Number two in your outline, who needs it? Who needs repentance? Look down at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, here's his his sermon. I want you just to think about this. Jonah converted the whole city with this one sentence, really half a sentence sermon. God converted him, but yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. So quick comparison here. Isaiah in the Old Testament, probably one of the longest ministries of all the prophets, in the Bible, he ministered for over 60 years in Israel. And for the majority of that time, barely any of the Israelites trusted God. Isaiah's commission was go to a people who, see, who being able to see, they will not see. Being able to hear, they will not hear. Their hearts will become hardened, they will be dull. They will reject your message. Go to them and minister to them. So for 60 years, he goes. Gives them the message over and over again. Barely anybody trusts Christ. Jonah goes and gives a phrase, and the whole city is converted. All right, so right away, just practical application. God called you to be faithful. He didn't call you to be successful. You plant the seeds, you water, you do what God has called you to do, and you leave the results to God. Let the seeds fall where they may. He will take care of the harvest. He will take care of the heart's Of men and women. Our responsibility is to simply be faithful with what he has told us to do. Jonah's short message is the heart of chapter 3, but it's also, it's the hinge of the entire book. All of Jonah 1 and 2 has been leading up to this this trip in this message to Nineveh. Everything after this message to Nineveh will go back to it. Everything revolves around Jonah's preaching to Nineveh. And grammatically, the obvious emphasis falls on the city, on the great city. Look down in your text. Verse 2, go to Nineveh, that great city. Verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. It talks about his arrival at the city. It talks about the time it takes to travel through the city. Verse 4, Jonah begins in the city. It's his entrance to the city. Verse 5 talks about the people of the city. Verse 6 talks about the king of the city. And there's an added description of Nineveh that almost zero English translations will put this in here. If you have a study note in your Bible, you might have it in a margin or maybe just a small little little point on the bottom of your page. Verse three says, Nineveh is an exceedingly great city to God, is what it should read. To Elohim, the most used general statement referring to who God is. The first description of God takes us back to Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning was God. That's the same word, Elohim, right there. And either it's used here, I don't know why translators don't point this out, either it's used here to show that the city had a plurality of gods, because Elohim is in the plural, it's a plural of majesty when we refer to God, the one God of the Bible, or It means that the city belongs to God. Nineveh is his city. It's so easy to focus on Jonah when we teach through this passage, when we teach through this book. But God is deeply concerned, intensely concerned with the city and with the people of Nineveh that live in it. God was sovereign over Nineveh. The the city belonged to him. It belongs to him. when we read texts like this, so does Tulsa. Tulsa is God's city. It belongs to him. It is part of his creation. And so when we go out into the city, we proclaim a message of the God that owns it and called you to be a part of this great mission to take it up for his purposes of redemption. Jonah had a, a miraculous turn to God in the belly of the fish, right? It vomited up. He was a new man, He's ready to go. He's gonna go throughout the city. He's gonna preach this message. He's on fire for Jesus. He's getting verses, he's sitting under trees and he's meditating on that verse. He's putting them in his dashboard. He's writing them on his mirror. Jonah is like this great classic example of somebody who had this bottom of the pit experience and now all of a sudden everything else is right in his life. God can't do any more good to Jonah. There's nothing else that needs to improve. There's no more repentance that's needed, right? Not so fast. First, let's, let's talk about this little short message for just a little bit. Number one, verse four emphasizes Jonah's entrance into the city only. It, enters, it emphasizes his arrival into the city. It says very few words about the duration of how long he was there, where he went, did he cover the whole city, did he not? We translate verse 4 this way. Jonah had just begun making his journey into the city. And you compare the three-day journey that it takes to go through Nineveh in verse 3 to the one-day journey in verse 4. And it makes us wonder and ask this question. Did Jonah even go through the whole city of Nineveh? When you look at the text, the answer seems to be, I think we can probably closely assume no, he didn't. Second, his message is markedly terse. Right? Forty days in Nineveh will be overthrown. There's not even a main verb when you read that in Hebrew. There's a noun followed by a, a participle, a participle phrase. It's not even a whole sentence. This is extremely, extremely short. As, did Jonah keep it short for a reason? Maybe we don't know. Third. Notice elements that seem to be missing, and it's hard to make arguments from silence, but there are a lot of them in this text. We know how the prophets sound in the Old Testament. When a prophet comes on the scene, how do you expect them to start their message? Really common phrase. Thus says the Lord. Where is the thus says the Lord? In Jonah, it's not there. No authenticator, no validation of the source of his message. We know it's from God. There's no indicator of a reason for being overthrown. Remember, their evil has come up before me in chapter 1. It's no longer there in chapter 3. There's no command to avert the disaster. This is what's been laid out for you, but if you repent, if you come back, if you trust God, maybe things will change for you. None of that. There's no mention of repentance. Finally, in verse 6, it says that the message reached the king. Is that because Jonah brought the message to the king, or is that because some people in the town brought the message to the king? There's no indicator here that we would even suggest that Jonah was the one who actually talked to the king. He probably heard it secondhand from somebody else. And the omissions raise our suspicions when we read this text. Is Jonah really obedient? Is his heart really totally and completely transformed to follow God, to carry out the calling that he has given him to carry out? Despite everything that's lacking, any perceptions about Jonah, any assumptions that he didn't do a great job here, he was, he was just mad, he was angry, and so he left a lot of things out, you know, we don't really know ultimately from the text. But here's what we do know. Verse 5, the people believed God. And some people suggest that because LORD all caps isn't recorded there, like the sailors... When they believed God, in chapter 1, LORD in all caps was used in that context. Some people believe that because there's just a general reference to God, maybe the town people in Nineveh didn't fully trust him. Maybe they didn't totally and completely repent. Do you know the first place that we read somebody believed God with that same Hebrew word in the Bible? The Apostle Paul talks about it a lot. It's going to take you all the way back to Genesis 15. And Abram believed God. God and he credited it to him as righteousness. In fact, there is a, a tendency in the Old Testament that whenever your audience is a Gentile audience, you're going to use names that refer to God in a more general sense of the word. Whenever the audience is Israel, the name used is LORD, all caps, the covenant name for the Lord. I think the Ninevites' repentance here is legit. I think they believed in God. I think this is a true repentance and a true faith in God, a faith in the Lord of Israel. Furthermore, look at the string of verbs in verse 6. Look at how the king responded. Verse 6 says, "'The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose, number one, from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes.'" Now, in the ancient Near East, this would have been unprecedented throughout history. A king would never respond this way. What happens in the text is that the people come to the king and now that he sees the the message that Jonah brought to the people, he sees their reaction, he takes the message from the people and then he reacts in kind. An ancient Near Eastern king would not do that. An ancient Near Eastern king would make the precedent, they'd make the edict and the judgment, and then all the people would follow after that. Here, the people make the judgment, the conclusions, and the king follows. It's just a a drastic, dramatic symbol to say that the king's heart was totally changed. He repented, and he showed signs of repentance on the outside. The phrase that really sticks out uh, to me is found in verse 5 describing uh, Jonah's message to the city and who responded to it. Verse 5 says, the entire city, from the greatest of them to the least of them, responded to Jonah's message. Apart from social class, apart from income, apart from status, whether you are successful, wealthy, and honorable, or whether you are unsuccessful, poor, and dishonorable, Everybody on the social spectrum responded to this message from Jonah. Who needs to repent of their sins? I love the statement by Jerry Jerry Bridges. Um, You've heard me say it before. Our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Our best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Who needs to repent? Every single person needs to repent regardless if you're educated or uneducated, rich or poor, significant or insignificant, regardless if you're in the margins or you're on center stage, repentance is needed for new life in Christ. Nobody gets a pass. It has to be personal. It has to be convicting. And it has to be God's work in your heart and in your life for it to be real and for God to respond to it with the gift of everlasting life. Number three in the outline this morning is, what is it? What is repentance? Look down at verse seven. And he issued, speaking to the king here, a proclamation, and he published it throughout Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. It's interesting that the, the animals respond better to Jonah or to the message of Jonah than Jonah does. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, verse nine. Maybe God may relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, he relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. What a great story for the wicked sinners city of Nineveh. There are many curious elements in this passage. I want to just bring a couple to light. One of the main things is, why the announcement from the king after their acts of contrition? Does it make more sense for that, again, the announcement of the king to be first, and then for the signs of repentance throughout the city to follow after that? Why the pronouncement if Nineveh is already showing the acts of repentance? Why was that ultimately needed? Number one is to do this, is to demonstrate that repentance is not the result of the king's proclamation. Repentance was the result of God working in their hearts and lives. It wasn't the king that stirred this up and and created this response. It was God that was working in their hearts. And nobody's going to take credit for that except God alone. Number two, the addition of the animals. Their repentance in here is, is described. The city's... Repentance is described as complete and thorough. And again, we're meant to compare this to Jonah. Jonah gets the word of the Lord a second time. Nineveh, the animals, the king, they get the word of the Lord the first time, and they respond to it. And they did so fully and completely and thoroughly. Thirdly, the king says each person must repent, and he adds the statement, from his evil way and from the violence in his hands. He makes it very personal and very individual here. Nobody can repent for you. Nobody can trust God for you. It doesn't matter if if you're in a great Christian family, just like we saw with the baptism this morning. Kira's faith is her faith and her faith alone. Nobody could do that for her except herself. Just because your parents are Christian doesn't automatically make you a Christian just because you grew up in a Christian nation doesn't automatically make you a Christian. You're a Christian when you personally decide to repent, to confess your sins, and to trust Christ for you and for you alone. The term that we read over and over again in verses 9 and 10 here is turn. This is the key word that is the word that describes repentance in the Old Testament more than any other word. In fact, you will find this verb for turn 1,050 times in all of the books of the Old Testament. This is the most common word for turning back to God, for trusting Him, for stopping the direction and the will of your life away from God, for turning around and going back toward Him instead, as He has created us to do. Repentance has very different nuances it is a it is a rich a highly rich word in the bible fundamentally but here's what it means to repent to god means to turn in an opposite direction in other words you are living your life apart from god in your way with your wisdom your skills how you wanted to live it and you're walking in that direction and here's the description for us turn around and go the other way toward God instead. It's, a, it's meant to be a word picture of coming to a dead end. There's no other way that you can go except back to the way that God has designed for you from the day that you were created. Theologically, repentance means this. It's a repudiation of all sin and an affirmation of God's perfect will for your life. A theological definition of repentance is a repudiation of all sin and an affirmation of God's perfect will for your life. In Hebrew, you're going to see another word that's closely associated with this, as "shuv. There's another word, Naham," that's used over and over again in the Hebrew. It's slightly different. It means to be sorry, to have pity, or to actually relent in turn, to repent and come back to God. Repentance always has a negative sense in the Bible, and it always has a positive sense. In a negative sense, you turn away from your old sinful ways of the past. In a positive sense, you turn back to God and you go toward Him instead. The Greek word for repentance, metanoeo or metanoia, a noun form means to change your mind, to come to a complete change of mind concerning who God is, concerning who you are, where you're going to go if you don't trust Him and spend eternity Jesus speaks of repentance, but he also speaks of the fruits of repentance. There's a changing of one's mind, and then there's doing actions that show that your mind is in fact changed. That relates to coming to that change of mind. Repentance is intellectual, it involves the mind, it's experiential, it involves the heart, the whole heart, and it is volitional because it involves the will. A really good definition of repentance comes from Bruce Marist. He's got a book on salvation, and he defines it this way Repentance is a divinely enabled human response, whereby God sovereignly arranges circumstances and changes hearts, granting sinners the power to turn to Him. C.S. Lewis put it this way He's got a book on a chapter on repentance and mere Christianity. I've taken a lot from it this week. He says this, I think I've shared this with you recently here. It's worth repeating. He says, repentance is not fun at all. It's something much harder than eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and the self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing a part of yourself and undergoing a kind of death. The people of Nineveh miraculously repented and turned back to God. They stand out. Exemplary. This is what the right response is to the gospel. Stop living your life the way that you want to. Come to a complete change of mind and live it the way that God wants to. Believe in him for everlasting life. I want to just just close with one point of application as we finish up here. And and I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. You can... um, Disregard your place in Jonah here. We're done there for the day. And turn to Matthew chapter 16. Most of you know Matthew 16 because it's uh, it's the famous part where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. In Matthew's gospel. It's really interesting. I want to just bring out something that the text says. Skip down to verse 17. Let's, let's start it back up in verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of, what does your text say? Jonah, Simon bar Jonah. Interesting little phrase, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed it. Now, some suggest that Jonah there is a shortened form of John, Peter's biological father. Some suggest otherwise, and I think very differently here. I'm just going to take the text literal face value. I think Jesus was being quite literal. When he was talking to Peter, he called him a son of Jonah. And he's referring to this rebellious, renegade, reluctant prophet when he said it. Because Peter and Jonah have a lot of things in common. And I'm going to bring this out because Peter's story is so famous. You probably all know it regardless. Peter and Jonah both were given a divine call from God. Peter was given the great commission to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them everything that I've commanded you, to preach the gospel to the nations. Peter is the first apostle in the book of Acts that delivers a sermon about the true gospel, of who Jesus was, his complete humanity, his complete deity, and what he did for us on the cross. Both Peter and Jonah, however rejected their mission. Both Peter and Jonah tried to flee from God. Peter did it by denying him three times. I do not know this man. I tell you, stop asking me. I do not know this man when he was being convicted and tried unlawfully. Both were initially resistant. Peter did not want to go to the Gentiles to bring the gospel to him. Remember what it took for Peter to finally go to the Gentiles with the gospel message? God gave him a dream. He gave him a vision. He gave Cornelius a vision. He said, look, God, how can I give what is clean and pure to the unclean dogs and the uncircumcised? We are Jews. We are in a privileged position. Remember, God gives him a dream. He lays out this white sheet, and he puts all these unclean animals on there, and he says, eat. Don't worry about it. It's all good, Peter. Peter. Remember when when Paul confronted Peter in Galatians? How is it that you, being a Jew, are preaching this message and and treating Gentiles differently? You of all people with the gospel are acting as a hypocrite and reserving the gospel message for you and for your people alone? Peter had to see that vision about three times before he went to Cornelius' house. And, And here's what's really interesting. You remember where Cornelius lived in Acts chapter 10? If you go back to Acts chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, here's where Peter had to go. He had to go to the house of Cornelius, who was in the town of Joppa. Remember where Jonah went when he got on the ship? He went down to the seaport of Joppa. Everything is relating these two guys together as we think about it. And everything about the text is telling us this one fact. It's my only application for us this morning. Jonah is learning the same message, the same truth, that I have learned, that Phil has learned, that Alan's learned, that Brad has learned, that Troy has learned, that Kira has learned. That is absolutely changing his heart and his life He's just so thick-skulled, he doesn't quite get it yet. God is a God of second chances. God is a God of new beginnings. When we read the book of Jonah, and you know the lifestyle, the sinful patterns of the Ninevites, you would say, certainly they don't deserve the gospel. Certainly they don't deserve a relationship with the one true God of heaven and earth. And that's exactly who God gives a second chance to. You look at the guy who thinks he knows it all, who actually has that relationship with God, and he's the one that's struggling to understand that God is a God of second chances. And so when we read Jonah chapter 3 and we talk about repentance, here's what you need to know. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what social spectrum you are on. It doesn't matter if you're insignificant or significant. It doesn't matter how great or how deep your sins are. There is no deep sin so deep and so horrible that it is beyond the forgiveness of God, That is beyond a second chance. Of everlasting life with God. There is nothing that you have done that can separate you from the love of Christ through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. Jonah is learning some hard lessons. The God of second chances that he serves is the same God of second chances that believes that the Ninevites can come to him in faith, that he wants them in his family. God is a God of second chances who patiently waits for his servants to embrace the call of his scandalous, inclusive mercy. Nobody is accepted from it. And so when he gives us the call, when he puts family members in our path, people that you might not want to go to and preach the message to, here's where we come back and here's where we go forward with the book of Jonah. God, you have shown me more grace than I could ever deserve and ever earn. My heart was filthy with sin and unrighteousness. And while I was yet an enemy of yours, Christ died for me on the cross. Who am I to withhold that message of salvation and second chances from somebody else? Just because they look different, Their sins are different than my sins. Their struggles are different than my struggles. We don't live in Nineveh. Tulsa's not too far off. The fallen world that we live in, some people just, they're hard to share the gospel with. When that thought comes into your mind, here's what I want you to do. Look in the mirror because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And God's mercy is scandalous. We've all been recipients of it who believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, help us to learn from Jonah here. We thank you that despite our frailties, despite our limitations, our often sinful hearts. You still choose to use us, and you give us second chance after second chance after second chance. Lord, we're so thankful for forgiveness. We're so thankful for mercy. We're so thankful that um, you worked in our hearts and our lives, those of us who know you, in a very real, personal way, that we might know and experience the grace of God. And we pray that you would give us a heart for those who don't know it and who desperately need it. I pray for our city, Tulsa, Lord. I pray that you would do a great, um, great work here, that your gospel would be true and clear through the mouthpieces of so many people who are sharing the gospel, who are living lives that reflect the gospel, and who desperately desire for people to be saved. I pray that Tulsa Bible Church would be a safe haven for those looking for something deeper in life, significance, and certainly everlasting life through Jesus. We pray all this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.